This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Pizza Hut, Franklin, Pizza Hut. I mean, you talk about the pizza wars and what's going on between Papa John's, Domino's, Pizza Hut, and the other chains. Pizza Hut up the ante, the triple decker box. Have you seen this thing? It's unbelievable. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. I think you were the one that pointed out that this is Steve Jobs inspired. You know, the the presentation here in the box is just, it's a thing of beauty. They deliver the box and the it has three drawers in the box, essentially. And the top drawer is a one-topping pizza. The second drawer is a one-topping pizza. And the third drawer is a combo of, I think, five breadsticks and ten little mini Cinnabon desserts. They call it the Triple Decker. $21. I'm talking about Blackjack. 21 21 bucks for the Pizza Hut Triple Decker box, Franklin. I mean, it's a new watermark. That's a new bar. They've set a new bar in the pizza wars. I know what's happening this weekend in the Coley household. We, we do know that. So on that note, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. We need a political revolution. And we will make America great again. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, the states can't wait any longer for the feds to get their act together and are having to step in and take charge of both employee and consumer safety as well as industry relief. As usual, California and Oregon are out front. We talked to both Matt Sutton, Senior Vice President of Government Affairs and Public Policy at the California Restaurant Association, and Bill Perry of Balance Point and the Oregon Restaurant Lodging Association, and lay out what's coming for operators and how their states are a likely blueprint for an incoming Biden administration. We'll also discuss how states and increasingly cities are developing their own relief programs to support employees and operators in their efforts to stay afloat. We'll discuss those issues and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my line public strategies partner, Franklin Coley. Well, as we talked about on previous podcasts over the last couple of weeks, we have talked about how individual states have gotten very aggressive in the workforce and workplace protection space, basically state OSHAs. Uh, we talked about Virginia early in the year, March and April, getting involved in this space. And how can they put up state standards to protect health and safety of workers You know, vis-a-vis the COVID-19 outbreak? I know a lot of industries, a lot of different companies have been looking for federal standards in this space that have not really materialized for a lot of obvious political uh, reasons. But states have gone forward. And we've talked a lot on this podcast about two big, important states that are usually very forward, front and center in this space, Oregon and California. And so, uh, as we alluded uh, a few podcasts ago, we're going to try and get experts from those states on the podcast. And lo and behold, we found two people that were not smart enough to resist the temptation to come on the Working Lunch podcast. So I want to bring on the pod two very old friends, two longtime advocates and warriors for our industry. I'll start in California. Matt Sutton, Senior Vice President of Government Affairs and Public Policy for the California Restaurant Association. And Bill Perry, who needs no introduction, the principal of Balance Point Strategies, longtime uh, lobbyist for the Oregon Restaurant Lodging Association, who still does that on an outsourced uh, basis. These are the two guys that uh, represent our industries in Salem and Sacramento. And I want to thank both of you for taking the time late in the day to come on the podcast and walk us through this morass of what is going on in your states regarding worker protection. So thanks, guys, for being here. Appreciate it. 
Thank you, Joe. Thank you. All right. So, Bill, no offense, but it's California. Yeah. They're number ones in their minds. It's all about California. So let's start there. So, Matt, tell me, I know about two weeks ago, state released regulations, workplace safety regulations. It was a 21, 23-page document. Can you tell our operators the core pieces of what is in the components of California regs and what they're going to be responsible for doing in California? Sure. Thank you, Joe. I I appreciate it. Um, You know, there's no question that our legislature in the brief time that they were here uh, earlier in the year focused on employee safety. Uh, Incredibly important, of course. Um, There was, you know, very little done, if anything, on sort of the employer side of things. So this OSHA regulation comes at a terrible time, as you can imagine, in terms of what operators are trying to deal with. But I think to make matters worse, this appeared on November 12th. It was then taken to the OSHA Standards Board on November 19th and took effect November 30th. So regulatory environments usually take some time. This was rushed through in a matter of days, and it's an enormous, enormous thing for employers to comply with, and in some cases, probably unworkable. There's a number of key features. There are a number of features that deal with physical distancing and face covers and personal protective equipment and written safety plans. All of those are largely already law. The key kickers in this thing are some COVID-19 testing requirements and some ongoing compensation for when you exclude employees from the workplace due to a COVID outbreak. So, Matt, I mean... In terms of, you know, I know from a federal level, as, as, we, as we look at these COVID relief bills and what's going on in Congress, we talk about employer liability and safe harbors. And Mr. McConnell's been a, a warrior for safe harbors. What in the California regulations, if you will, what in there provides, if, it, if, if I'm Joe, you know, I got Joe's Bar and Grill in Laguna Beach, California, and I'm trying my damnedest to do the right thing. And I, and I, I love my employees and blah, blah, blah. What, what protections are in your regulations for a guy like me who's really trying hard to do the right thing? How liable, how exposed am I? Oh, boy. No, there's nothing but banana peels here for the employer. That, that, that's for sure. There's all sorts of opportunities to have challenges with compliance. You know, I think it's going to be re- incredibly hard for employers to, to comply with this and to do it so quickly. Again, this just became law days ago. Um, And so going forward, you know, we can get into it later if you want, but there are some opportunities for us and employers at large to to sand the edges on this thing going forward. What what a great term, sand the edges. And and that's that's important because I think I think for operators, they feel especially out in your part of the world, they feel like, man, they're just they're out there alone. Bill Perry up in Oregon. You know, I I know you got a similar similar situation up there. What what are the, the key nuggets for operators if I'm a either a multi-state operator or I'm a, 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 you know, an individual mom and pop in Eugene, Oregon, what are the big parts of your uh, health and safety program that I've got to be re- really worried about? Uh, yeah, but I, I can't stop thinking about Laguna Beach and, and Fort Lauderdale now that you guys are, you know, Florida and, and uh, California. And so it's hard to focus, but no, I mean, besides a lot of the same things like the physical distancing, the masks, basically what OSHA is requiring is they're requiring an exposure risk assessment, which is a program you've got to fill out. And kind of like Matt was saying, these things passed like a week ago, and this is due on December 7th. You've got an infection control plan that's due until December 7th. You have employee training modules you're supposed to be making sure your employees take on December 21st, and you're supposed to have these ventilation requirements done 
uh, till January 6th. Now, OSHA has came out uh, with our industry and a few others because we're under a freeze that just finished where you had to be closed. And so they have pushed back enforcement, meaning you're still required to do it, but you're not going to be penalized if you don't have it done by these dates. And you can go to the Restaurant Lodging Association's webpage and get kind of the how this stuff works. But kind of like Matt said, you know, usually you go through these month-long processes for all these regulations and then you give give you certain time to get it done. But they just passed this. They basically say you have to have it done now, but they're not going to enforce it later. So, I mean, it's just all these different things that are happening to our members that, you know, they're just trying to get their doors reopened because we've been under this freeze. But those are kind of the high points. So, so Matt, same point to build is, is, is yours effective immediately? What is it, the, the timeline of yours? Yeah, fair question. Yes, it's effective immediately. It took effect November 30th, and uh, it is in place as an emergency regulation. So, you know, there's, there's obvious, even, even the most benevolent operator who's totally committed to the health and safety, you know, of their, of, of their employees, for a lot of this, whether it's putting up physical safeguards and plastic shields and the PPE and all this kind of stuff, there, there's unbelievable costs associated with this, which is I'm, I'm not decrying the cost, you know. But, you know, as we've been saying on the, on the federal side, if you're going to do X, Y, and Z to us, then help us out with relief packages, right? For the, for the yin, these the yang. Are your states in the process or having a conversation about helping operators with the cost of complying with this, are are your are your legislation in Sacramento and Salem saying, "Hey, we got to give these guys grants, we got to give these guys loans, we got to give these guys tax credit"? What's is there any conversation about the offset of the cost of this stuff? And I'll start with you, Matt, in California. Those conversations are just now starting. Um, Joe, you bring up a good point. You know, we've been asking for some sort of tax credit or relief because, as you pointed out, these are operators that are making the expenditures for public health protective purposes. Uh, and due to the fact that the state government has has done the shutting and opening, shutting and opening since March. And so we think the state has a moral obligation to help with that. Uh, but to date, there really hasn't been conversations about that. And as we head into our next legislative session, which effectively starts January 4th, uh, those conversations are picking up. Bill, what about you? Uh, yeah, they've done some grants and everything else, but like they, they did some grants through Business Oregon, but a, it was one of those things where it opened at 12 o'clock uh, at noon on one day, and by 20 minutes, they already had three times more requests than they had money for. So I, I do think they're trying. They're providing masks and, and personal protective stuff. But I mean, it's it's not even coming close to the need, not even close. So they're just anytime they put any money out there, it runs out quicker than they can probably set up the program. So so let me let me ask you uh, both a second question. And I think it, it leads into my Question after that, my follow-up question or a comment. The role that California and Oregon have traditionally played as you've been out front, especially in the OSHA space, but a lot of other regulatory, you know, EPA, environmental stuff, whatever it may be. And a lot of the country follows what you all do. You set a marker that other like-minded states get to, and then we have, uh, you know, a critical mass of states get to that point, and then the federal government feels involved in that. We, we replay that scenario on so many issues over the last 25 years, but kind of those West Coast states, Washington, Oregon, California, always out there front. What you guys are doing, you know, in this space, a lot of it will be a blueprint, I believe, we believe, for what the Biden administration, the incoming Biden administration may do at a federal OSHA level that the outgoing Trump administration has been reluctant to do. And so what you all are doing there is super uber important for so many ways. 
but not only as a precursor to what may come for any federal action. So I, I would ask you both as an industry, you know, you guys are both seasoned professionals about how to impact the legislative process and legislative conversation. We're really good as an industry at, at impacting things in the legislature. Impacting things in the regulatory level is hard. That's, that's really hard. It's a very different ballgame. What avenue, Matt, Bill, your states, do you think you have to, well, I think Matt was the term you said, uh, sand the edges, you know, soften those edges. What, what are the opportunities we have there? Because again, what you guys, no, no, no pressure on the two of you, but what you guys get done in your two states may be the, the, the blueprint for the federal level. Well, Joe, uh, that's concerning and not surprising. Um, I agree. We're hearing lots of whispering and chattering about how, you know, these these two uh, states may be, may be used as sort of the starting point for discussions at the federal level. But I, I would say, and I think Bill touched on this, the fact that these two OSHA regulations came out as emergency regulations, but jammed through the process, at least in our case, jammed through the process with very little political uh, public review and feedback and certainly not stakeholder input that was you know taken to heart. Those are the problems. And so this thing is not cooked and it's a mess. And so what we can do here is it's a temporary emergency regulation. There's no question that OSHA in California is going to look to do a long-term permanent regulation even though we presume that COVID is a temporary problem. Um, and so that, that process that's coming is where we expect to once again assert ourselves and show the unworkability pieces of this, which in our case really relate to the employer obligations with regard to COVID-19 testing and the compensation for employees indefinitely uh, when they are excluded from the workplace because of COVID or a health order. You know, to Matt's point, you will find in some of these states, the unions are using this to basically get long-term uh, changes to a short-term regulation. I guess, you know, Joe, the, the, the one thing that I would say that I would hope happens pro- potentially at a federal level uh, if they do look at this, I mean, fundamentally, the, the problem with OSHA is, is that if you receive a call, as we all know, being in this business, somebody complains, OSHA goes out. If they find a violation, they have to write you a ticket. It's not a conversation of, oh, you did your best or whatever. And so if the federal government is all going to help us, the the issue is they have to free up OSHA from that requirement to saying, you know, if it's a short term regulation and it's, you know, there has to be a grace period so that some of these operators that don't completely understand all the stuff that they're supposed to be doing, if it looks like they're going in good faith, at least they don't get an OSHA fine because OSHA is required them to find them if they're not following the rules and it came from a complaint. That's a fundamental problem that is going to be basically amplified with the rush regulations that we have. So I really think if, the, if they want to move forward with this and try to get some COVID things done, they're going to have to figure out a way to change that simple policy, at least as it relates to COVID. Yeah, I mean, that's so, yeah, two, two things. I want to talk about the union piece. We've been talking for a long time, for weeks and weeks and weeks on this pod. A couple of weeks ago, we had Mike Saltzman from Plymouth Politics Institute on the pod. Last week, we had Matt Haller from International Franchise Association on the pod. And we talked about a lot of different things. But one thing we talked about in common was the unbelievable opening that this allows the labor community in terms of their, you know, organizing and, and what and have a very different conversation, and in our estimation, a much more relevant 
uh, tangible conversation to employees. It isn't these benefits and wage model thing out here. It's like health and safety today. Are you going to be protected from your job today in this place of employment? And so I think it's interesting that you talk about the labor community and their activism in this space. This is a huge open door. And in your two states, I mean, you know, they, they are a significant player for obvious reasons. Bill Perry in Oregon, you've had Burgerville and, and another uh, little big burger, both organized in the last year from the IWW. Uh, so you've had firsthand labor organizing going on, in restaurant labor organizing going on in your state. You've seen it in Minneapolis and a couple of uh, brew pubs and distilleries. This is a huge opening for these guys. And to your point, if the industry looks like it's being I don't know the right word, intransigent or, or, or not looking out for the best interests of employee health and safety. We have a real challenge on our hands with, with the kind of renewed energy in the labor community that both of you will be facing firsthand. Yeah. And then you talked earlier, too, about the, you know, is there any safe harbors? The unions have said all along here, if you want to have any, you know, because that's what we tried to do is get a short term liability to say, look, if I've met all the governor's executive orders, let me at least have a safe harbor against lawsuits. And basically, the unions have said, no, unless you get a presumption on on workers comp, we're not even having a discussion. So, you know, it's just one of those things in the state. I do. I mean, you guys down in the south would know better. But it's when you look at a straight restaurant unionization, generally, when the, the people that went in to organize it leave, the employees are really left with they don't really like the union. <laughs> the question is, how do they get out of it? Because it's, a, you know, they actually, in my opinion, lose more money as an employee paying their dues and they benefit from it. And so it's creating some more problems up here. But on, on the hotel side, things there's difference. But, you know, they've they've been making a effort, but I just think it's a few people kind of traveling around. But they're doing more big picture stuff in our state than kind of the unionization of the restaurants. So, so let me ask from a from a compliance perspective, and this I'll, I'll kind of wrap it up unless you guys want to add some other stuff. But you know, I think about just at a very granular operations level compliance piece. You know, I'm an operator, I'm a franchisee, and I'm a I'm an Arby's franchisee, or I'm a Sonic franchisee, or McDonald's, or Burger King, or Wendy's, or Chick-fil-A, whatever it is. And you know, the, the California standards, and we have six feet, blah, blah, blah. You know, I've got registers on the counter that are less than six feet away from each other, right? You know, and so my entire layout, my footprint of my operation doesn't imagine a lot of these standards. So is there a, a resource for the operator, for the employer, the manager, the franchisee, whoever it might be? Is there a resource office in either of your states where they can go, hey, man, I, I don't understand. I'm trying to do my best. How do I get from A to Z what you want me to do, knowing that I've got six cash registers across this counter? Are you telling me that I should close down half of them and double the line? Do I got to put plastic, you know, What's the process of, you know, benevolent compliance? <laughs> like, I don't know, I'm just making it up as I go along, but if I really want to comply, what's my resource to go figure that piece out? Uh, in our state, I, there really isn't one. I mean, obviously, we, you can go on our website. We've got everything that's available under the sun. But it, it part of the problem is, is that our governors, uh, and Matt can attest to this, when they started out, they just said, we're, we're all three going to do the same thing. And as this being the small state, that's great because let's be honest, people will adjust to California. Nobody's going to adjust to Oregon. Now, that was a nice soundbite, but since then, almost everything that's been happening 
has been happening at different rates or whatever. So like outdoor seating, which we need in Oregon, your coverings, you cannot have more than one side on a tent in Oregon. You can have three sides in Washington. I mean, it's just everything is just slightly different. And even if they make a standard next week, it could change. And so if you try to produce materials, it's just so problematic. And that's part of the reason why I think Matt members of mine are just saying, okay, if I'm doing everything in good faith, at least give me some protection uh, because it changes too often. Yeah, I think Bill makes a good point, especially uh, with regard to, you know, outdoor eating structures and the number of walls you can and cannot have to call it outdoor, because that that's a great example that, you know, applies to everything going on right now. But this OSHA reg in particular, which is the landscape underneath employers and restaurants in particular continues to change. No exaggeration not weekly, but daily and often by the hour. And so these OSHA regs in California have been set up with an ever-changing landscape underneath our feet, including CDC updating their recommended amounts of time for quarantining, you know, just in the last week or two, yet we've locked in, in our regulation, 14 days. Um, and so there's there's discrepancies everywhere. And uh, it gets to the ever-changing nature of the goalposts being moved on a lot of these, um, you know, COVID responses. So I, I promise last last bucket of questions, last, last subject area. You know, I think both your states and a number of states across the country, and we talked a few weeks ago on this podcast about what your sidekick, Justin Winslow, has been doing in Michigan. We, we talked about how Restaurant associations have, have had to go to court, man. We'll see you in court. And I know California, Matt, you guys have, have gotten active in that space and you pushed back against Los Angeles County. And this week, the, the, the judge in Los Angeles County sided with you and said, hey, man, these, these regs were not based in, in proper science. And then lo and behold, you know, forgive me if, if, I, if I get this wrong, but maybe that doesn't matter because the state's doing this and it has it has precedent over what, what, what the city's doing. But are you guys going to continue being litigious in this space. You're going to be going forward with additional lawsuits at state level. Bill Perry, same question for you guys up there. I know you've done some of that stuff. Matt, what's the what's the next couple of weeks look like in that space? Yeah, I appreciate that. And and we did have a victory recently and we're 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 not uh in the business of being litigious, but what we are being faced with is restaurant operators you know, at the end of the line here, we've been doing this since March. And if you look at LA County, they were not allowed to even operate indoors since July. So then when you steal outdoor dining with no data, it's it's ridiculous. And so, you know, yes, we have a larger stay-at-home order that is slowly, you know, taking over the entire state and that bans outdoor dining. But here's the value. The value is that there is no contact tracing that shows that restaurants are a systemic source of COVID spread. And that was the argument for L.A. County shutting down outdoor dining. So the long term value here, Joe, is that we have 58 counties, each with their own health department. And we have a number of other regions that have their own health departments, like the city of Long Beach and Pasadena. But the point is, all health departments have now put on been put on notice that you've got to have data and you cannot be arbitrarily picking on one industry and taking away our operations. Yeah, we file a lawsuit too as a stay. And actually, if you listen to our epidemiologists in the press conferences, when they talk about the restaurant industry and the fitness clubs, they talk about CDC guidelines. When they talked about everybody else, they talked about experience rating. And so, and in essence, you've got five months of experience under these guidelines uh, in every industry. And, and the restaurant industry and the fitness club have shown no 
stronger propensity to have any infections inside their businesses than anybody else. And so when they came to the second freeze, they allowed all retail community to stay open at 75%, but then they closed restaurants and they said no outdoor dining, which we're sitting there going, okay, well, why do they operate on experience rating and we don't? So we sued them under the order, which didn't surprise me that much when the court said basically it's an executive order. The governor has almost you know, the right to do whatever she wants to, and in essence, but I do think they're in, I'm not saying this is going to happen. I do think you have a potential takings case when you say, okay, this business has had no more, you know, infections in this one, you let this one operate at 75%, you'd close this one completely. So the question is, did she treat fairly and was there undue harm? I do think there's that potential there. Now, whether or not somebody pursues it is a different uh, angle, but it, it is it's just, we have experience in this. And, and when an industry actually goes out and proves that they were able to basically do this safely it just seems like the punishment is way too harsh after the when you have an experience rating of five to six months. Well, a couple of things pop in my my tiny little brain. I feel for you guys because the litigation front is is really the only viable play, especially in, in states with a political environment. You two reside in every day, you know, and litigation is expensive. And if there's a cheaper uh, industry on the planet than the restaurants, then I don't know what it is, right? So. You know, how you guys raise money to do what you do is, is hard. So, I, you know, I appreciate that. You know, the other piece is, and I, I worry, and, and I've been saying this for a long time, I worry about us getting into a science conversation with scientists and how we frame that, the tone and tenor of that conversation. I think with you guys, I think when we started these conversations four or five months ago, we were, in my opinion, a little shrill, a little tin-eared, and we didn't do it right. I think the way you guys have approached it, uh, the NRA, Sean Kennedy, his crew in the last couple of months, you guys, it just sounded better. It's been a much more thoughtful uh, way to approach this. So I, I commend you guys for how you've approached this. And, and again, the tone and tenor you've approached it. Last question, because it's kind of a litigation inside baseball game, is there anything average restaurateurs, average operators, franchisees, corporate people can do to help you? What, what you know, Matt said, what is, what is, you know, if I'm, Joe's Bar and Grill, now where my sister lives in Laguna Beach, California. What do I do? How do I help you? That's a good question. It's a fair question. And restaurants in California have been incredibly supportive and helpful to date. And I think, you know, what we need to do is we need to keep up educating not just the public, but, you know, uh, elected officials at all levels, because it's easy for them to see uh, a lot of delivery from restaurants and things and think, oh, okay, good. My restaurant's doing okay. No way. No way. You know, delivery is maybe getting someone in the chase for breaking even if they're lucky. Uh, what it's really doing is it's allowing people to employ the few people they have left. And that's sad, but it's necessary. And so what people can do is continue to tell the story, continue to join our efforts to put pressure on state and local leaders, because all of these restrictions in California uh, that are data driven are one thing, but the arbitrary restrictions are absolutely something different. And they're killing businesses and they're making thousands and thousands and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people unemployed. Um, and so that's the story we need to keep telling. And that's the story we need to keep putting in front of lawmakers at all levels. So contact us. Uh, we need more and uh, vocal. Yeah, I was just going to say that one thing that we're doing a lot more. more of is Zoom calls, just because, I, I, you know, getting 
getting restaurateurs out of the restaurant is, as both of you know, has been very, very difficult. So, you know, now that obviously there is a little bit more time, depending on the situation, we've been setting up Zoom calls, three or four restaurateurs with a legislator at a time, just kind of talking through this. And it really does give you an opportunity to talk about the nuts and bolts and finances of a restaurant. Uh, we were just having a conversation about delivery fees and the delivery company was sitting there going, well, can I just have 20%? We're going, well, my profit margin's three to 6%. If I give you 20%, I've lost my profit margin threefold. You know, so, I mean, it is giving people a different way to talk about their finances. It's giving people a way to do, you know, I was maybe on two Zoom calls in my entire life before this year. Now I'm on three to four a day. And so it does give us a chance to basically meet in a venue that it doesn't take a lot of time out of the, the restaurant tours day. And they can even get three or four guys, especially in the urban areas like Portland, three or four guys in their block, they can just sit there and go, okay, do we have time to do this and, and call our legislator? So, you know, take advantage of what's in front of you. The fact that you got time, you fact that you've got a financial story to tell that everybody understands and believes. And it's just, it's a, it's a great time to make that move. I couldn't agree more. It's interesting you, you mentioned the Zoom calls, and you know I've been in this industry a long, long time, right? And I don't, I, I don't know one other thing that the association, state level or the federal level, national restaurants could be doing to not do it. So it's amazing. I mean, the, the NRA for a couple of weeks ago had a had a Zoom call with the U.S. Conference of Mayors, like 300 mayors on there, just walking through all this stuff, and they're getting ready to have another one. And they're just, you know, they're having conversation after conversation after conversation, educating people. But as individual, to your point, Bill, as a, and, and Matt, as individual stories and understanding what the what the real life impact is. And again, to go back to my my McDonald's franchisee, who's got his five cash registers across the counter, and they're all <laughs> now he's out of out of compliance with the new ocean standard in California. Is like, help me, help me, help me get it right. You know, where do I go? So it's a dilemma. Listen, we've been on long enough, taking enough of your time. I appreciate you guys. You know, I know our audience, you know, knows, you know, we've been talking for years on this podcast about all the legislation and regulation that comes out of your states. You guys on the front lines and you, you guys have two two swords in your hand. You're fighting for the industry in your state, but it's the precedent that goes that goes to other states. A lot of it starts out there. So you guys got two jobs in one. And guys, I, I couldn't imagine you guys do it any better than the two of you do it. And so appreciate uh, you taking time out of your, your busy days and, and coming and talking to our audience about this really important project and issue area. So thanks to both of you. Keep on keeping on what you're doing in, uh, in Salem and Sacramento. And uh, we appreciate your time. Yeah, send me some sun. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. Love your program. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Bill. You got the best, man. Take care, guys. So Franklin, Obviously, the industry is very lucky to have those two guys run a point in those state capitals. You can't get smarter guys. You can't get more dedicated guys. They get they get the joke. What is your take on our ability to, you know, we talked talk to both of them about the, their ability to impact this through the regulatory process, through litigation, you know, get, getting the industry involved. You know, where do you see the state regulations? What's your take on how the incoming Biden administration may view what's going on in Salem and Sacramento? Yeah, I mean, clearly you're going to borrow from these state level blueprints. And that's why it's so important that we're pushing back. You know, we're pushing back in multiple forums. So we're pushing back through the regulatory rulemaking process. We're pushing back in the courts. And then hopefully or, or likely uh, we'll be pushing back during legislative session here. You know, look, we've got 14 states that have implemented some sort of rules at the state level. 
some of those are more problematic than others. California and Oregon are pretty much, you know, up at the top of the list of, of the problematic ones. There's some really troubling component parts of these requirements. You know, testing in the California uh, requirements are a nightmare. You know, our national testing is terrible. You know, it, it can be a week or more to get tested and to get results. And so, you know, that, that effectively is is unworkable. And it's even unclear, I think, in the California rules if the employer has to pay for it. You know, so there's problems with the California stuff. There's also some unworkable stuff in terms of partitions, you know, and distancing. So we have to push back hard on all this stuff now so that we have an opportunity to sit down with the Biden administration and other states and, and hash out those unworkable pieces. And um, yeah, you're right. We've got smart people out there doing doing good work, not only in the restaurant associ- restaurant side, but also in the retail world. And the National Retail Federation is has pending litigation in in California, and so we got a lot of smart folks, and and we've we've got to collectively come forward and push back on some of these these troubling pieces early now, um, so they don't get adopted um, at the federal level or elsewhere. What I, what I was struck by that, that both of them said was they, they're longtime veterans of the process, right? They're insiders. But the speed, especially in California, the speed at which uh, these rules were promulgated, uh, you know, I don't put words in, in Matt Sutton's mouth, but, you know, kind of jaw dropping at how fast all this happened. And, you know, I asked him a question about you're, you're a franchisee of, a, of an Arby's or a Burger King or McDonald's and you, know, you got five cash registers across the counter and, all this, they're not six feet apart. So what do you do? Do you, you know, do you have to throw away two of your cash registers and move them? How do you rearrange your, 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 your front counter there to comply? And where do you go? If you're, if you want to do the right thing and you want to comply and you want to, you know, you want to, you know, want to be a good soldier, what are the resources available to you to, to find out that information? And it's a big question mark. Like, where do you go? It happens so fast. It hasn't all been put together yet. So operators are in a tough place. Stay close, you know, stay close to your state restaurant associations. Use the California Restaurant Association, Oregon Restaurant Lodging Association as resources. To try to, you know, navigate this space. Use outside counsel, whatever you got to do. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sticky wicket. So, Frank, any final thoughts on that space? Yeah, I mean, I just say, you know, We've said it before, and I just say it here in the in the conclusion here. These workplace standards are are one side of of the coin, right? The other side are the reopening um, requirements. So, you know, the the reopening or you know, requirements, you know, are generally geared towards kind of customers coming in the store and interacting with one another. The workplace OSHA requirements are are more, for lack of a better term, back of the house. That's not perfect because there's not a perfect division between workers interacting with another and, and customers in a restaurant, particularly in casual or fine dining. But um, the other thing that we're going to have to deal with is some of these different standards, as they start to come out, they may conflict and um, they may bump up against one another. And and one side of the coin may make the other side of the coin unworkable. So it's going to get even more complicated. It's even more important that we're at the table and that we're pushing back on some of the, the things that bring operational challenges. Uh, we can expect that the places where we've had the strictest reopening guidelines, we're going to have the strictest OSHA guidelines as well. We're seeing that play out in Oregon and California right now, and we will see that play out in other states around the country in the probably coming weeks and months. And, and the last thing I would add, I think you just hit the nail on the head. You talked about the, the operational difficulties. You know, and, you know, I've me 
in particular, but both of us, but me in particular, have been beating the dead horse on tone and tenor of our pushback on some of this data and trying to outscience the scientists. Let's not outscience the scientists. Let's talk about the operational implications, how you execute a restaurant, how you implement these regulations, and what that means to, to the business flow and how you serve customers and how you protect employees and so forth. And that's a space I think we can have a legitimate adult and successful conversation. And so I thought it was a good interview. Uh, I'm glad those two guys are on point for us. And um, if you're an operator and you have operations in those areas, stay close to those guys and their organizations and you know, try to help navigate this very difficult space. So over the last couple of weeks, Franklin, we've talked you know, about what's going on at the federal level with regard to you know, federal relief packages. And we've talked at length about, look, if you're gonna, if you're gonna shut us down, you're gonna close our dining rooms, the, the opposite reaction should be give us relief, Com- you know, help, us, help us make up for that gap. You're, you're shutting us down, then help us with relief. And we're seeing this the federal process is stuck, right? For a lot of obvious reasons, you know, politics, you know, first and foremost among them. But states and localities have said, all right, you know, the federal government's not going to move. We've got to move. Frankly, there's a lot of activity in the local space with, with regard to relief and, you know, supporting the industry. Can you tell our, our listeners kind of what's, what's going on in that space? Yeah, sure. I'm actually blown away by how much is going on um, at the local level. And and these aren't really big dollar amounts, but if you combine them with stuff at the state level with, you know, federal relief, you know, maybe the power company gives you gives you a break, maybe the, you know, your landlord gives you a break and maybe you can look for some third-party group for, you know, a grant. Like you can start stringing some of this stuff together. So, um, what's happening is the CARES Act money is kind of like filtering down finally to the state and the locals, and they're rushing to spend it all before the end of the year. And if you don't have a program locally that is doing restaurant-focused grants or uh, relief, then you should go be talking to your city council members about it because they may have gotten CARES Act funding, and they may be getting funding in this next relief bill or the next. And so – What's going on across the country like runs the gamut. Everything from the rock, you know, one fair wage grants where you have to agree to one fair wage to get, you know, 15 grand. That's what Boston's doing following New York City and Southern California to, you know, this week, a city in Atlanta is gifting or granting alcohol licenses to restaurants to help them. Grubhub and a lot of the delivery platforms giving breaks for relief. And Boulder actually has set up its own free delivery platform for all its local restaurants. And, and so that- Oh, Frank, I'm not to interrupt you, but Berkeley, California, you know, the bastion of, of liberalism is actually has a restaurant support program to subsidize outdoor dining uh, and help restaurateurs with the cost of outdoor dining. It's, it's really impressive if you just kind of Google around the variety of programs that are being put forward. And it seems that, it, you know, the, the National Restaurant Association is working with U.S. conference mayors and other groups to, like, put forward these templated policies that kind of make sense everywhere. But there's a lot of stuff that's just happening organically that is bubbling up from the ground up that, that may make sense in one community, but not in the next. And so I guess what I'm saying is there's federal money. We're all focused on the 908 coalition. And this big, massive federal bill and whether or not it's going to get done before the new year 
and what it's going to include and what that's going to look like. And is the restaurants at going to be in there or more PPP and yada, yada, yada. Can't ignore, though, that a bunch of this federal money is trickling down to the local level. And I bet if you show up at city council and make a strong case for some of that money to be used to support restaurants in some way, I bet you're going to have success because we're seeing it all over the country. And I would encourage everyone to to be thinking through that and doing it. And it, it seems like it'd be easy to overlook in some of these smaller cities, some of these programs, but you need to be dialed into it and talking to your city council persons and uh, participating in the programs that they exist and then advocating for, for new ones if they, if they don't. So I think you, you just answered, I think you just answered half my, the questions I was about to ask you, you're, you know, you're Frank's Bar and Grill, Hickory, North Carolina. What do you do? How do you stay abreast of this? How do you take advantage of all this, this conversation going on at the local level? I would literally just call my city council person. They would be happy to hear from you in this environment and happy to have a discussion with you. And if they haven't been thinking about this, which they probably have, and I would say also that there's a lot of relief funds at the local level that aren't restaurant specific. They're for small businesses or, you know, they're, they're broader. And these are like five and $10,000 checks. It's not alone going to probably save the day, but if you combine it with some other stuff, it, it may. I literally would pick up the phone and call my city council person and, or I would go in the city council website. I mean, I think it's, it's that simple is just starting a conversation. I mean, that's half the battle. I mean, half of the work that we do is just going and sitting down at the table with policymakers and having a conversation that gets you about halfway there. So um, in this case, we have national press every day about how restaurants are getting hammered. We have national sentiment on our side. We don't really have to go in there and make the case that we're getting hammered or we're in a tough spot. Everyone understands that. It's on the lips of every cable commentator every day. All you have to do is go into your local policymakers and start putting forward solutions. Not to really sell them on, on this, I need some help. They know you need help. What they need is they need to come up with some creative solutions that, that make sense in their particular community. Well, I, I think it's good counsel. You think about it, you know, oh, there's an in, incoming Biden administration and, you know, they'll take office January 20. and But it'll take, you know, even if they're completely on their game and they get what they need through Congress, you're talking February, March is the earliest window to see kind of real relief. And for a lot of restaurateurs, that, that's five months away and they're, they're not going to make it five more months. And especially if they don't have outdoor dining and so forth. So your, your point's even more spot on in the sense that, you know, localities are rallying. They're trying to figure out ways. Get engaged with your city council. Get engaged with your mayor. No city too small. And no restaurateur's voice is unheard uh, unheard in this in this kind of current uh, situation. So it's all good council. Uh, and hopefully, you know, restaurateurs will, 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 will engage in that process. It's time for the legislative scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the key legislative and regulatory developments that happened this week. And as always, Franklin, we start with COVID, and uh, there's a kind of a moderate centrist coalition trying to form in Congress uh, in the Senate uh, regarding COVID relief. What's going on up there? Yeah, we have a name for it now, the 908 Coalition. So named because the uh, the package is a 908 billion dollar package. Um, last week I was struggling. I was like, it's like the gang of eight. It's moderate bipartisan senators, but it's not the gang of eight that never longer exists really. So we got a, we got a name, 908 coalition. DC loves, uh, 
their names like this. So look, we're hitting the same stumbling blocks that we've always kind of hit. Dems won't local and state funding. Repubs won't a liability shield. You know, the the same the same hangups. We've got agreement on the framework from all the the big players, and you know they did a uh, they did a spending bill stopgap spending bill to this week to give them another week to try to get this thing done, and then attach it to the government funding bill, which is necessary to keep the government from shutting down. So basically, they've given themselves one more week to hammer out a compromise. You know, I'm not going to go through all the component parts because it's still changing, but there is some stimulus money in here. You know, this would. Uh, replenish PPP. It would do some other things. There are some things that have been left off here, most notably paid leave, which we're going to talk about in, in one of the next sections here. But paid leave is not included in this bill as it stands today. We'll have to wait and see what happens next week. Hopefully we can punch through the issues that we've had in the past that have sunk this thing every time. Well, it seems like, you know, you know, any given news cycle, somebody's up, somebody's down. But I, I did see for the first time in the news cycle, Maybe a little softening in McConnell's armor about the liability shield. So we'll have to see. That's been his kind of line in the sand now for, for six months. So that's kind of interesting development. Again, it's the media, so, so God knows. Uh, Franklin, you know, we talked, in a, we talked in this segment with Bill Perry and Matt Sutton earlier about some of the good things the NRA has been doing. Um, they were active again this week, sending some more communication up to the Hill. What did they do this week? They, they had a good week this week. They came out with some new numbers, a new report, and quite frankly, drove a ton of coverage the beginning part of the week around how restaurants need this lifeline now. They need a down payment, kind of using the Biden language. Now they ain't going to make it if if they don't get it. And they have, they've really done a good job overall, continuing to kind of keep the heat on. And uh, some of the numbers were 110 thousand establishments. 110,000 establishments are permanently closed or long-term closed. You know, there's no expectation they're going to reopen. That's a big number. And, you know, they're they're not like fly-by-night operations. These are businesses that on average have been in business for 16 years. So they're really kind of community fixtures. And they had a bunch of other data in this study too. It really just paints a real picture that goes right beside all the anecdotal stories that we had popping up in the press about how hammered the industry's getting. Kudos to the NRA. Keep it up. You know, I'm hopeful we're going to have a breakthrough, and I'm hopeful that that restaurants and hospitality are going to be recognized as really suffering as much or more than any other segment of of the economy. Well, what strikes me is, you know, and I think this is now the third time in this particular podcast we've referenced the National Restaurant Association, their outreach to mayors. But one of the one of the things that they've done very well over the course of this pandemic in the last eight, nine months that will have sustainability for other issues post pandemic and, and down the road is they've really done a nice job of driving the conversation of the linkage between vital and vibrant downtowns and urban corridors, the the inner interwoven linkage that the restaurant hospitality industry has in that. And you cannot have a vital downtown corridor without vibrant restaurants and bars and, and hotels and so forth. And so, uh, you know, through all this, making lemonade out of lemons, through all this, one of the things that NRA has done a very, very good job of is creating an awareness of the the intricate role that the industry plays in the vibrancy of these downtown. So 
you know, like I say, I don't I don't know where that pans out in the short term, but certainly in the long term, that is a great, great strategic reposition for the industry. And I'm glad that we've, you know, kind of found our way there. Frank, I'm speaking of downtowns. Um, you know, we've talked on the last two pods about what Los Angeles has been doing, but and and I mentioned it. You know, we talked a little bit about to, to, with Matt Sutton earlier, but the California Restaurant Association went to court against the city of Los Angeles around their their dining restrictions, and uh, lo and behold, they were successful. Yep, court found that basically the uh, city had not acted based on science and risk benefit analysis and that they had to go back to the drawing board. There was some data that came out a few weeks ago that showed that like 3.8% of transmissions in LA um, could be traced back to restaurants, whereas like someone in the neighborhood at 8% were traced back to government buildings. So by that logic alone, you'd be doing a lot more shutdowns in government buildings. Obviously, you know, there's some essential worker considerations here, but you know, that, that's essentially what they're calling for. The judge upheld and agreed with uh, the association. Well, I think it's important in the short run, you could say, hey, you know, it didn't matter much because during the, you know, in the middle of this process, the state came out with their own standard that superseded it anyway. But at the end of the day, here's a federal court siding with the industry on their logic, their case, there's judicial precedent now. So even though it kind of, the end of the game, quote unquote, didn't matter. I think it mattered a lot. And I think that will strengthen our cases in California and other places going forward. Franklin, let's switch to wages. It's it's kind of interesting. You know, there's not a whole lot of wage activity, but man, the little town of Portland, Maine uh, is having a, a local conversation that I think has significant national implications. And it has to do with hazard pay and the, 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 the viability and the efficacy of hazard pay. Walk, walk the audience through what's been happening in Portland, Maine. Yeah, the short version is um, activists put in the ballot there a measure that would increase the local minimum. It's one of the only minimum wage measures on the ballot this this last go around, actually. But it raised minimum wage fifteen dollars an hour, and then it had a, a hazard pay wage in there, time and a half, which is you know eighteen dollars an hour. So voters approved it. It was going into effect. The city council convened and basically delayed, or in effect, struck down the hazard pay provision and allowed the uh, simple increase to go into effect. Activists have since challenged that in the courts. As that court case is playing out, different employers are reacting and treating this in different ways. And its effective date is is now. So, so employers have to comply with it now. And so some employers are actually complying with the hazard pay requirement. Others are not. And employers need to be careful here. We, I think it was SeaTac. But we've had jurisdictions before, and the SeaTac lawsuits, if memory is serving correctly, took you know a year or a year and a half to play out. And the minimum wage increase there was upheld, and employers in the small city were on the hook for back wages for that period. And so that's a potential liability or exposure here. This court case takes a while to play out. You may be on the hook for, for back wages. Of course, flip side, if you increase now to the hazard pay level, Right. And then, you know, it's found that you weren't required to pay that. Then you will have paid out of pocket wages that you didn't have to pay. And you will have a hard time explaining to your workforce why now you are cutting it back and taking it away. And so it's quite the conundrum for local employers. Um, You just kind of have to think through what makes the most sense for your workplace. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's uh, there's risk involved across the board. 
So uh, we'll keep you updated as this uh, progresses. So Frank, in the last few weeks, we've had, you know, not so much to, to talk about in the paid leave space, but the first half of the year talking a lot about paid leave, not so much in the, in, the, in the last few weeks. But man, we've made up for that this week. A lot going on in D.C., the Joint Committee on Taxation did some math on the on the issue that you're going to bring us to the speed on. We know that the, the federal paid paid leave provisions, the CARES Act, are expiring, and that's setting the environment for a lot of state and local activity. So bring us up to speed. Take it, take it from the top. What's going on in D.C. with regard to paid leave? Yeah, so taking it from the top, the paid leave requirement under previous federal leave bills is getting ready to expire. December 31, which means there will be no federal requirement for paid leave related to COVID-19 starting January 1, unless it's included in this uh, relief bill, which at the moment, as we discussed earlier, it is not. So we're getting ready to hit January 1 with no paid leave requirement um, and no offset for employers to cover the cost, right? That was also in some of the previous relief bills. And uh, that is a little of a precarious situation for, for workers, and that is going to spur a lot of action at the local and the state level heading into 2021. So you mentioned the Joint Committee on Taxation. They came out with a report this week that showed that the paid leave program was far less ex- expensive than it was expected to be, probably because of the low uptake level. I think it surprised everyone how few people took advantage of the paid leave program and how few employers sought reimbursements for for paying out workers through the program. So, it, it you know, this is coming out at a time where it was thought it was going to influence negotiations. And, you know, members on the, on the Hill would say, oh, it's a lot cheaper. You know, let's put this back in. So and that will be probably the argument going forward for its inclusion. So it was $1.35 billion for two months, $1.8 billion for three months. So that's happening at the federal level. The local level, as we said, we're probably facing kind of an, an explosion of activity. And this week, we, we just have two cities, not insignificant cities, but two cities uh, popping up, Albuquerque and, and Pittsburgh. In Albuquerque, they're looking at paid leave legislation. I swear Albuquerque has been looking at paid leave legislation for like eight years now. But they're going to defer action pending paid leave legislation in February. Also, we've got a state-level bill and they're coming in session in January, so Albuquerque's kind of taking that into consideration. That's the main, I guess, the main takeaways in Albuquerque. Um, Joe, anything else to hit on that one? Yeah, they're, they're just basically punning. They're like, "Look, let's 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 hold off. Why why get down this road? It, it appears the tea leaves are aligning that the state's going to do something here. So I think it's a kind of a wait and see. I think you hit the nail on the head. Moving to Pittsburgh, the city council unanimously approved legislation requiring businesses more than fifty employees to provide paid leave to workers who contract COVID-19. It will, uh, this will only last while the city is under, you know, state of emergency due to the pandemic, which, you know, will probably be a little while. This follows some of the requirements we've seen in other parts of the country. It's essentially plugging the hole. You know, large employers were exempted from the federal mandate. And so this is Pittsburgh following what we've seen in, in other parts of the country where cities, particularly California cities, um, and some states have, have made large employers require that large employers provide paid leave like small employers have have been required to under the federal law. Frank, on, on the uh, on the private sector side, one of the big industry food suppliers, Danone, which supplies Dan and Yogurt, Activia, Evian Water, a bunch of, you know, known brands, uh, significantly altered their paid leave policies this week. 18 weeks of paid time off. First year of birth or adoption of a child, um, that's that's a lot. That's 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 aggressive. 
and 6,000 employees. That's, um, that's a big company. I, uh, I didn't know their footprint was, was such in this country. That's, uh, yeah. that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a marker. That's a new marker. Well, again, it's, it's the movement of the marketplace and the competition for workers. And what is the norm? What's the 50-yard line of the, of the conversation? And the more and more companies go that route, you know, the farther some of the traditional restaurant industry employers fall behind in terms of the competition for workers. So that's kind of why we continue to note those. Frank, let's pivot to uh, labor, labor policy. The Democrats in Congress on the Ed and Workforce Committee are getting active on the future of work. Uh, isn't everyone these, these days? Yeah, they put out a big report this week. It's definitely worth a flip through. Let me just read you from the table of contents. Chapter one, section one. The fissured workplace is leaving workers worse off. That's your line, man, the fissured workplace. You, you and David Weil, that's, that's like the, you're the only two people talking about the fissured workplace. We, the franchise industry, for the longest time, you know, were directly linked with the fissured workplace and, and the greatest enemy and the greatest beneficiary of, of the fissured workplace. Some would argue construction, other places, but we were, we were the poster child, at least for a short time period here. But now, you know, the tech platforms have, uh, are taking, taking the fire. But, I, I, you know, I flag this because I'm going to go, go ahead and beat my drum, get back in my soapbox. This conversation is not separate and apart from us. You know, it, it is all part of the same conversation. At least our opponents think it is. So we can't let them have this future work conversation over here about the fissured workplace and not think it's going to bump up against our business model. It will in a heartbeat. So anyway, the uh, the report is on Ed and Labor's website. Give it a look. It's very interesting. If you've got two hours to burn, give it a look. I've, I've been struck, you know, as a, a tangential to all that, I've been struck by been a number of editorials this week, obviously choreographed, you know, big PR firm, blah, blah, blah. But a number of op-eds have run in papers across the country talking about portable benefits, talking about commitment to gig economy workers. Uh, so one regarding the New York, New York state legislature, one involved the California legislature says that there's an orchestrated effort, uh, re- renewed energy after the AB5 fight, what's going on to have the portable benefits conversation. So I, I'm a bit, Tangential to the whole future work thing, but uh, I think it's interesting and important nonetheless. We talked about last week in terms of Americans for Prosperity getting the fight and launching their campaign. It is on. This is happening. This conversation is happening. We've been talking about future work on our podcast now for a couple of years, and it, it's it's here. It's here and it's now. And future is now. So, uh, speaking of which, the, the the a lot of the proponents pushing. That, that particular aspect, portable benefits of the future work conversation, the labor community, man, they are, they're, they're, they've been active the last couple of weeks. And uh, Boston, the home of Mayor Marty Walsh, who is a shortlister for potential Secretary of Labor in a Biden administration. What's going on in Boston, frankly? That's why it's worth noting here. I mean, Boston joined New York City. I mentioned it earlier, New York City and some of these California cities to basically adopt the one fair wage uh, requirement to get their relief fund. So in Boston, if you're going to get 15 grand, if you're a restaurant, and this is for restaurants, and you want to get a 15 grand grant, you have to agree to pay, quote unquote, one fair wage, you know, that's traditionally means no tipped wage of 17, or excuse me, 12.75 for the month of December. We worry about this because seeing... Mayor Walsh and, you know, Boston's a union town, more or less, right? Like, it's not it's not that surprising. But having a potential incoming labor secretary that is just closely aligned with our 
uh, fiercest opponents that's troubling. And it, w- it would not be surprising if they were in the Labor Department coordinating and enforcement actions and all kinds of things, you know, under his administration. So troublesome, Joe, troublesome. Well, just for context, we, we, we talked earlier about how the localities are getting more involved in this relief space because of the inaction at the federal level. While some are getting involved, here are some notable localities getting involved and saying, hey, unless you adopt this agenda and this wage and, and all of this, you're not going to be eligible for these funds. And so it's, a, it's an important it's an important development that people need to to, to take take note of. Franklin, uh, also uh, the NLRB has been uh, uh, active this week vis-a-vis Google. We've been reporting for months, if not years, here on kind of the Google employee activism. It's been on climate change. It's been on this, that, the other. There was a time period where it seemed like every two weeks, uh, Google employees were walking out or something, some Trump action. Google got aggressive. They brought on board, you know, some union avoidance consultants. They started pushing back. They started clipping, firing workers that were participating and leading some of these actions. Some of those firings were found to be lawful, you know, because employees were engaged in acts that weren't protected or were just outright unlawful. But some of those employees, um, the NLRB, NLRB believes, were fired unlawfully. And in uh, particular, workers that participated in two actions, and they were related to the Trump administration's immigration or the, the company's cooperative efforts with immigration agencies and enforcement actions and the company's handlings of uh, sexual harassment allegations. So these employees did a number of things, access company documents, use company email, and those were found to be violations of company policy and they were fired. The NLRB is saying, no, no. Those were protected activities under the National Labor Relations Act. And so we will see how this uh, this all plays out. But it looks like at least in these two instances, Google may be uh, maybe in a little bit of a little bit of trouble. Interesting time to be with Google and Facebook right now. So, Frank, let's switch delivery up you know, real quick. Um, Erie County, New York, which encompasses Buffalo, considering a 15 percent cap, Santa Clara, California, and the Bay Area doing the same 15% cap. But I thought the interesting development in the delivery space this week is we talked about, you know, a few weeks ago, the, the, the governor of Washington, you know, Washington being one of the first states, if not the first state to do a kind of a statewide uh, cap on delivery programs. But the attorney general, uh, Ferguson, got involved this week issuing guidance. So uh, Washington State taking the delivery game and those caps very, very seriously. Kind of interesting development. You do not want you do not want Bob Ferguson getting in the game. Um, that usually does not work. If, if, if Bobby if, if Bobby Ferg's gets gets you in his in his sights, he's 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 in for the long haul. He plays for the varsity, so you usually get in well. I mean, he his personal jihad in the non compete agreements basically got most companies to get rid of non compete agreements. So delivery plan all across the country. One one AG out in the left corner of the of the country basically changed franchise contracts nationwide. So he's he's a very committed guy and he gets involved in this third party delivery space. He can make a lot of noise. So it's certainly one to watch. Frank, something else to watch, our good friends at Bacardi. You may or may not be familiar with some of Bacardi's products. I may or may not be familiar with some of Bacardi's products, but uh, doing some interesting stuff in the packaging world. What's going on down there? They caught the card, Joe. They came up with a fully biodegradable liquor bottle. 
So 18 months, you throw this thing in the compost pile, Joe, and uh, you can fertilize your tomatoes. It'll it'll break down fully. The challenge here is they can't really roll it out. I guess it's a good problem to have, right? But they can't really roll it out because it's going to screw everything up because consumers are going to throw it in the recycling bin with all the other glass, and then it's going to contaminate those recycling loads. Or they're going to throw it in the trash. It's going to go to the landfill, and it doesn't compost. It doesn't break down. Well, it does, but not at the same speed, you know, because the way that landfills are packed in doesn't really give an opportunity for oxygen to get to it, break it down, all this kind of stuff. So they did it, Eureka, but now they can't really you know, put the bottles on the shelves until consumers get educated on these, these different types of bottles. But hey, look, it's, it's a sign of the times. It's where things are headed. And now the Californians of the world can go, oh, yeah, you can go all biodegradable. It's going to have market impacts as activist jurisdictions, you know, say, yeah, spoons, utensils, plates, liquor bottles. They're, they're out there in the market that are biodegradable. We're going either all recyclable or all biodegradable. And so, you know, these types of breakthroughs are going to expedite that movement towards those mandates and requirements. So does this mean if, if, if I buy a bottle of Bacardi and it sits on the shelf of my liquor cabinet for 18 months, it will start to disintegrate inside my liver? We, we all know you've never had that problem. This is a theory. I never, I'm talking about hypothetical. Theoretical conundrum. It's, it's all it's all theoretical. It would never never ever be irresponsible for that to happen. But if 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 someone was a light rum drinker or a light tequila drinker or whatever it may be, would the bottle start to disintegrate in their liquor cabinet in eighteen months? Are you aren't you encouraging binge drinking at that point? I guess so. I guess so. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. I mean, yeah, for a lot of people, that's a it's a real question, but not in my house for sure. No, I'm a big fan of Bacardi products. Uh, so anyway, interesting week. Uh, not as long as scorecard we had last week. Uh, so we were catching up for a couple of weeks there, but a uh, lot going on. Continued uh, conversation in the COVID space over the next uh, days and weeks. Obviously, a lot more will be happening in the jurisdictions responding to the end of paid leave benefits. So. We'll see a lot more stuff happening next week, and we'll be here to report on it. All right, another week, another pod. Franklin, our parting shot. Let's talk a little bit about Biden's cabinet coming together. Are you surprised how it's come together? Has it come together kind of the way you thought? Any surprises? What's your take? I'm surprised at how hammered he is getting by every side. The Latino, Latina, Latinx, whatever you want to call it, community is pissed that there's not enough um, Hispanic Latino representation. The African American community is pissed. There's not enough African American uh, representation. Who am I leaving out? Like everybody's pissed that there's not, there's not enough diversity in the picks, but I have to say like, there's some pretty, pretty good picks some pretty qualified people. It's it's interesting. Let's, let's put it that way. It, it, it's been an interesting lineup. It is old school DC. Like this could be a cabinet from like eight years ago. Yeah, it's it's, it's long term DC guys, but the Republicans have an easier time in the cabinet. They have a, they have a deep bench of angry old white guys to pick from. The Democrats have to do this. You know, every every flavor has to be satisfied and box checked. And so whatever he does, Biden's going to get pummeled and you know your, your point is well taken the only one i was disappointed in the defense department although it's not you know really relevant to the restaurant industry but for the democrats to in, in, in my opinion rightfully protest that 
military, you know, the waiver that military people have to have. It's supposed to be civilian control of the Pentagon. And Democrats have made a point over that over the years. And to nominate someone who's a, a general, that was an unnecessary fight. I worry about that one, not really about the pick itself or the, I have no doubt that the, the person was, was competent and could have done a great job. But why pick that fight, man? You got enough fights. I, long-term prospect of all that just kind of bothers me a little bit. Well, the, the, the Xavier Becerra pick for HHS is kind of a similar deal. I mean, I guess that deals with the Hispanic issue, but you know that, that's a Hispanic cabinet pick for a big agency. I, I think HHS would be elevating that kind of top tier of cabinet secretaries, given the fact we're in the middle of a pandemic, and he'll probably make it through. But it's striking, I mean, the lack of healthcare experience. You, you would think you would want someone with some healthcare experience. And, you know, the argument is it's a management role. It's, you know, we don't need a doctor running HHS. And I think that's that's true. But you would think you would want someone with a background in from that side. And this is uh, this is not a, a middle of the road pick either. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how that confirmation goes as well. That's just an interesting pick. I, I feel like that's probably going to be a bit of a fight when maybe it didn't need to be. But we'll see how it kind of plays out. Yeah, I think I think he's got a heart. I think I think Dems the general rule of a heart of minefield to to navigate. But I think he's made some pick again. Nothing to do with the credibility of of, of the nominee. No doubt they're they're credible and they'd be a great job. But in terms of the politics of it and the, the picking the fights that don't need to be picked, it's, it's kind of it kind of bothers me. But anyway, well, a lot more where that's going to come from. And uh, as always, we'll be reporting on it. And we look forward to visiting with you all next week. And until then, stay safe, stay informed, and we'll talk to you then.